Hello, and welcome to How to Launch an Industry with Marku and Aurora. I'm Jehan Marku. And I'm Nigam Aurora. Welcome to this fun episode. And while Nigam and I could do it alone, we're joined by two of the smartest people in the cannabis space today. Please welcome uh, Dr. Professor Sarah Jane Ward from Temple University, one of the best universities in the United States. Absolutely. Hello, Jehan and Nigam. Thanks so much. Awesome. And joining us as well from the GMP Collective, our resident expert about all things GMP, David Valencourt. Hey, good day, Nigam and Jehan. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys and Sarah. Looking forward to chatting with you as always. Thank you so much. So for today's episode, we're going to go through some news. A couple of interesting things have happened recently outside of the environment that we're all operating in. Uh, as well as some really great science. And then we're going to end with a little game. Uh, and I'll share that with you as we move through. So it might be about psychedelics. It might be about cannabis. You'll just have to pay attention to the news stories and topics we cover. So we're going to jump right in. Probably one of the most exciting things um, I have seen is that the FDA issued draft guidance on cannabis clinical research and at the same time sent um, CBD enforcement discretion guidance uh, that we don't know what it is. So these two amazing things come out. I want to focus on the good news and that's this really important step that the FDA took. These are quality considerations for clinical research involving cannabis, which is also hemp and, and CBD products and cannabis derived compounds. So you know, what, is, what are the standards for even conducting research that will be acceptable for market approval um, for these compounds? Um, and, and, you know, CBD is in this weird space where it's intended for sick people, but regulated as a food almost. And I think, you know, it's going to be useful as things move forward to see federal and state cannabis actions, maybe even working together. So, David, I'd like to go to you first because everything starts with the source and you work with a lot of people around the world who are sourcing materials. You know, based on your understanding with your GMP perspective, how difficult do you think it will be for someone who is GMP compliant to meet standards that the FDA is trying to, to seek here? Yeah, that's a great question and point, um, you know, and I'll start with the the obvious that they state there that may, may or may not be so obvious to our listeners, but, you know, historically, the access of that raw source has been limited to one location in the country, right, and that's the University of uh, Mississippi and their National Center for Natural Products Research. Um, that's been the case for about 40 years now, and um, they are looking for other, other people to potentially provide that source. To meet GMP requirements to that point uh, for clinical products at this level is, is not that difficult um, with the caveat of of course it is following best practices it's documenting what you apply to your to your um, agricultural commodity that really is hemp or cannabis uh, and documenting that throughout the supply chain and your processes so <clears throat> I think there's um, really a lot of benefits for folks to consider um, to become um, you know, to be compliant, to be able to provide consistent products that can actually be used in uh, statistically significant clinical trials. Great point. Thank you. Now, Sarah, um, you do research. Research is your thing. I imagine that you would love, you know, in the future to um, see things that, you know, start off in test tube, go to mice, and eventually go into people. Is there some, does this, you know, FDA draft guidance give you confidence that someday you'll be able to, you know, take what you're learning in animals and, and then maybe even move it into humans? Or do you think this, that's still a long shot, even with this sort of draft guidance? No, I, I don't think it's a long shot. And if you asked me that last year, I would have said it is a long shot. So I guess <laughs> that's good news. I do see so many things changing, you know, rapidly in this country and something that I think some of us have talked about before in other countries as well. Uh, I know in Canada, the pace of clinical studies is moving forward really rapidly. And part of that is the availability in Canada of so many different strains. And I hope that we can look to Canada as inspiration of how to have this more countrywide 
um, universally regulated program that extends both to the animal research but also to clinical research. So I think that you know this is an excellent first step. Uh, as David mentioned, you know one of the things that we need moving forward from this with these guidelines is more available options so that we can use that guidance but have the materials available to us to test the wide range of different cannabinoids that we're already able to test preclinically. Excellent. And, you know, and, and the point about having more options, even Mahmoud Osoli, you know, Dr. Osoli, who has been running that program and sending the DEA more paperwork than anybody can possibly imagine. He said, please let there be other people do this because it falls squarely on him. And he's just like, hey, I'm just an academic researcher. They give me like 15 feet of clay to grow the world's supply of cannabis for research. You know, yeah, industry, help them out. I think get, this is really important. Again, I think it's one of those instances where the industry has an opportunity um, and only the industry would take a great opportunity like decriminalization, legalization, medicalization, and just be like, let's create the CBD industry and regulate it as a food. Uh, that's, uh, so I think we, I, I really love what our panelists are saying. You know, Nigam, you've been quiet. <laughs> How do you feel about the FDA guidance? Thanks for asking, Jayhan. So, yeah, you know, I read through this um, and a couple comments off the top. One is... I think it's interesting that they're delineating uh, CBD and then they spend like a third of the document telling us how to calculate can or uh, THC percentage. And what I learned is you got to make sure it's really, really dry to make sure that you're not in any way slightly above the limit. Um, but the interesting thing is there's nothing about any of these other cannabinoids and one way or the other. So I, I guess my kind of summation is that I, I agree with what Sarah and David said, but I think there's for, for folks who are uh, experienced, who have been on the ground in uh, legal States or interacting with researchers in other countries. Um, I don't know if the, the focus here is, is hit right on the right on the head, in my opinion, for really achieving meaningful research urgently. That's, that's a good point. I, I, you know, what I'm hearing is, you know, this is a good first step. It's giving us some confidence that there may be other sources of these products for research in the future, but it really is still a very clear gray area in how this is going to work together without some huge federal changes. Um, thank you. you. Know, so we're, yeah, I, I'm ahead. waiting for the, uh, what I'm waiting for is, so this is the uh, FDA, you know, guidelines. Now I'm waiting for the DEA guidelines because yeah. it made it very clear that I got to talk to the DEA about THC. Right. And I'm sure the DEA will, you know, stick to their mission of perpetuating confusion around this topic. <laughs> uh, so I think speaking, um, yeah, or sorry, I just saw David uh, just poke his hand up in the zoom. If I could just add there, you know, you're totally right, both Jehan and Nigam on one, the DEA, um, for better or for worse, is going to stick to their hardline mission of oh, it's above 0.3%. It's a schedule one drug, no therapeutic value, yada, 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 um, controlled substance. Um, and yes, this document could be kind of perceived, you know, I'd say somebody in pharma looks at this and is like, okay, where's the new news? Um, there's no new news here. You know, it's botanical drug substance, there's guidelines for that, ICH, there's guidelines. <laughs> um, but I would say from, you know, these are all baby steps. And um, this is huge in terms of just the fact that the FDA took the time to acknowledge it and actually, you know, got through the bureaucratic red tape and was able to say, hey, cannabis for clinical trials. Um, that said, I would also just add one more point, which is that um, we still need a lot of work to do in terms of how clinical trials work for botanical drugs. We can't follow the pharma model. The pharma model averages two and a half billion dollars in five to seven years to get a drug through clinical trials and approved. This is a this is an herbal product of a botanical drug. There needs to be a better, more robust, and sim but yet simplistic process to address you know this multi-component uh, drug. Right? We're not just talking about the API, you know, single molecular um, structure. So there's still a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And and speaking of uh, botanical products, well, actually, maybe not a botanical product, 
Uh, some people think of it as a plant-based medicine, but I can tell you it's very, very wrong. And that's mushrooms. You know, this, you know, we were going from illusions and perpetuations of confusion and what's going on here to magical moments in the pharmaceutical industry as the government seems to be in the US, you know, labeling things like psilocybin as breakthrough therapy, um, a label that fast tracks things uh, sometimes in clinical studies. And a company, the Cybin Corporation, is, is reporting partnering with a pharmaceutical manufacturer to make strips that are apparently going to be cherry flavored with 25 milligrams of psilocybin in them, which has been shown to be associated in, with treating major depressive disorder symptoms in trials. Now, we can barely get a hold of plant-based medicines and how to regulate them, and we're jumping into kingdom fungi like it's going to be easy. Um, you know, but I, I've got to, you know, the, here I think the American public may not be ready for this discussion of what's the difference between a phase one and a phase two and a phase three study. Um, you know, Dr. Ward, you know, is there a simple way you could tell people, you know, how to remember the differences between all these different types of clinical studies? Like, why is a phase two clinical study important and, and why should people care about it more than a phase one? So... The, the goal of a phase one study is to demonstrate safety and really whether or not the compound or material that you're testing is effective may never play any role in a phase one trial. So the phase one trial is critical to make sure that uh, no harm is going to be done, at least as compared to the gold standard other treatments for your target indication. And then phases two and three focus on trying to determine whether there's any effectiveness. Uh, so, you know, both are really important. You have to get through the phase one to make sure um, that you are, understand the safety implications, but then you really need to know in a very well-designed fashion, is this providing benefit, and as I mentioned, um, does it provide benefit above and beyond, not just equal to what is already available in the field, and then balancing that with safety issues? Okay, and let's, and, and, and Sarah, if I could follow up with your thoughts about a some legal administration form from a, a risk perspective, you know, um, you know, Dave Chappelle talks about a comedy special about, you know, eating mushrooms and how they tasted like athlete's foot and were like hard to eat. Now you're putting it in a cherry flavored strip, but you know, you know, is there, are there some risks from putting, you know, psilocybin in administration forms and, and kind of rushing through trials or, is our, you know, I kind of think of these drugs as not necessarily the most rewarding drugs for like animals to consume. Mm -hmm. um, but what are your thoughts on sort of administration forms for psychedelics? Yeah, I, you know, I do think a lot about administration forms because most of my research is on CBD. And if I think about, for example, epidiolex, you know, this is something that is a concern. Uh, in, in both directions. So do we want to package a drug that we have some concern over safety as something that tastes like a candy um, and at the same time compliance issues if this is a medication for the elderly or for children, it's important to try to increase the palatability of a compound. So that formulation will be important for safety purposes, um, but also really the packaging and other things I think should be more a part of keeping that drug safe and out of the wrong hands. I don't think it's fair to say don't make it taste good so that kids don't like it. I think the compliance issue is very key. We want to improve compliance and that's always an issue in big pharma, right? We don't want to give anything that's going to hurt somebody. Injections, there's always a balance of the disease you're trying to treat and what might people be willing to do or take or experience uh, to get the therapeutic benefits. So I think, it, I, I think it's really important to explore the different formulations and make sure that it's an improvement without introducing new safety concerns. I, I love that, Sarah, you know, because we have to think about the naive user here who's never taken this product. They're trying to get relief 
And if it tastes really horrible and makes you gag, you're like, eh, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to take my medicine. You know, there's a reason why it was difficult to feed kids castor oil, you know. So, <laughs> um, David, I, I know you generally work in kingdom plantae and kingdom fungi might be a little bit different, but are there, what lessons in, in good agricultural collection and good manufacturing practices do you think apply in the space of cultivating mushrooms? I mean, there are like, in Pennsylvania, where Sarah resides, is one of the largest providers of mushrooms for the entire world. Something like a third of the mushrooms in the United States are grown in Pennsylvania, but not, they're not grown for a very a particular compound like cannabis right. might be. So, what what tell us about what philosophical insights do you have to guide us in good good practices for mushrooms? Yeah, well, and, and so that that's great. And to the point of, you know, we're not in, you know, the plant kingdom no longer. However, we're still in the non-synthetic world, right? So this is, you know, a botanical or, you know, naturally kind of occurring without getting into the term, well, definition of natural. Uh, that's a whole nother ball of wax that we could dive into outside of the the pharma and drug world, but um, you, you really want to look at, again, those good agricultural and collection practices are, are standard. Herbs, right? Uh, tubers, things that grow in the ground, <clears throat> um, mushrooms, fungi, right? Uh, anything of that sort, you still want to make sure it's in a controlled environment or that when you're collecting it, you have, you know, the location information that you understand what kind of, uh, you know, <clears throat> potential contaminants it could have been exposed to. Um, and of course, when you start getting in the clinical trial world, you, you cited, you know, GW Pharma and Epidiolics, you know, that stuff's grown in an indoor environment, right? Those products, uh, they're, they're, sorry, their plants are grown indoors in very controlled environments. That's not to say that it can't be um, cultivated outdoors and then extracted and used in a, you know, clinical setting. Um, it's just saying that it's harder to control and you need to be more aware of that. So I'd say mushrooms, plants, it uh, doesn't matter aside, um, there's still the same set of best practices that should be applied. And then once you get into, you know, actually extracting it and then getting into, you know, cherry flavors or how are we going to administer this product, <clears throat> what route of administration, what, um, you know, in the term, the pharmaceutical world, what excipients, right? What inactive ingredients are we going to use to help carry this into your body, whether it's putting, you know, some sort of gelatin capsule around it so that you don't taste that, you know, that that's standard in pharma, right? Not nothing tastes good. <laughs> Everything probably tastes like athlete's foot or worse if you were to just take the raw ingredient of your ibuprofen. You, you encapsulate that, right? So um, whether it's putting in the cherry flavor, that needs to be controlled too. And that's where good manufacturing practices comes in. Excellent. You know, so <clears throat> it seems like there's, you know, a lot of insights that could be applied to, you know, what we've learned from working in the natural product space and, and turning those into pharmaceuticals or botanical products and whatnot. Um, Nigam, you know, I'd like to ask you a question, drill down a little bit, and I, I give you two options here. Uh, you can either address dosing with uh, psychedelics and, and give us some background about that, or and or what industry do you think is better for businesses to jump into? Should they stay in cannabis? Should they keep going into cannabis? Or should everyone just say, screw it, this is too difficult, let's go into psychedelics. This will be much easier. Yeah, and we'll no, make more money. <laughs> <laughs> Inter interesting spread there. So actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna be ambitious. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit them both briefly. So one thing that uh, I'm glad you asked about dosing, because one thing I saw in the study is that you would reference this 25 milligram dose when you were introducing it. That's the what what they're calling now this kind of standard therapeutic dose as like a benchmark. But what's cool about this as an oral uh, sublingual method is that they're saying they're going to put three, five, or seven milligrams in it because they're bypassing uh, the gut. So they're thinking it, it's going to hit you differently. But um, one of the, uh, this um, Dr. Alan Davis is saying that he actually thinks that it matters for it to go into the gut. He, it needs to be ingested. There's a reason that um, you get a certain effect when, uh, the mushrooms are eaten. So anyways, uh, I, I just thought that was an interesting commentary on dosing and working in um, cannabinoid formulations myself. Uh, it's, it's something on the mind, right? So, which actually is a good bridge to your second question about, you know, 
people jumping into this business. And I think what I would say or, or request of people is just to be um, conscious about doing something meaningful. I, I would say if you're just getting into psychedelics to be in psychedelics or because um, you think you're going to turn a quick buck, I would, I can't promote that in good conscience, you know? So that's what I would say on that. Excellent. Thank you. All right. We're going to start jumping into some of our uh, rapid fire science here. We're going to go around, talk about some studies. Um, one I'd like to jump into right now is CBD is a safe treatment for cannabis use disorder. A study has found that a compound from cannabis can treat, um, you know, cannabis use disorder. And at first I thought this was a, a little weird, but, um, there seems to be some really good evidence to support cannabis <laughs> as the treatment for what it causes in a conceptual sense. I mean, it's just fun to think of it that way, but Sarah, can you provide us with some more, um, you know, in helpful information than I've provided about this study? Yeah. So this study got me really excited because before I was a cannabis researcher, I was a substance abuse researcher and I always love when two of my favorite worlds collide. Um, and, you know, as someone who's passionate about reach, uh, researching CBD, it is a dream of mine that CBD has some utility for substance use disorder. It's also true and important to point out that although many of us are passionate about the therapeutic potential for cannabinoids, that cannabis use disorder has been increasingly been addressed as a significant issue for cannabis users mostly in the focus on withdrawal symptoms. So getting away from any arguments about is it addictive, is it not addictive, cessation of heavy use of cannabis is associated with withdrawal. And the focus of using CBD as a treatment really does make sense in that regard. You know, the main cannabis withdrawal symptoms are agitation, anxiety, insomnia, which are already things that we talk about with CBD separate from cannabis use disorder and withdrawal. Uh, so I think it's very exciting. I thought the um, results were um, you know, intriguing. I'd like to see them measure the clinical withdrawal signs from cannabis and not just whether or not it decreased cannabis use after these people started using CBD, but I, I think it's awesome. Excellent. Uh, you know, I think you're right. You know, for opioids, no matter how mild the withdrawal symptom is, they have that cow's score sheet where they can, you know, assess. And it doesn't mean that one cow's sheet means everything. It's, it's something you have to do over time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there is a lot of discussion about cannabis. Is it addictive? Is it, is it not? But, Sarah, would you say that anything that alters your cognition, whether it's caffeine, nicotine, whatever, is going to have, you know, some, you know, you're, you're taking a loan out on your brain and you're going to have to pay that back. Do you think that's a good analogy or, or do you have an analogy for just kind of generally for people trying to understand how something like cannabis can lead to withdrawal symptoms? Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest improvements in psychiatric diagnosis and our understanding of substance use disorder has been trying to tease apart dependence and withdrawal from addiction. So they, they really should be thought about as two separate phenomena that nearly always occur together because most drugs that we take consistently over time can produce tolerance and dependence just because our bodies like homeostasis. And so you keep putting something in, especially the brain, you keep hitting the brain with a chemical and the brain's like, whoa, let me readjust here. And then when drug gets taken away, brain's like, oh, I've readjusted and now I've overcompensated and I have to rework things. So it's very common for drugs that act on the brain to you know, change the normal functioning of the brain and then have to, to you know, reconfigure in the absence of the drug. And this is a very common feature of drugs of abuse, but it doesn't mean that a drug is addictive because it does that. And it doesn't mean that if a compound produces tolerance and withdrawal, right? we've all had to taper down from prednisone. It produces nasty effects. If you cut it cold turkey, it doesn't mean prednisone is addictive. So they're two separate phenomena that 
often occur at the same time. And so treatment of substance use disorders can address trying to treat the addiction, can also address trying to mitigate the withdrawal symptoms. Wow. Uh, wonderful answer, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And um, I will not confirm or deny anything you say. I'll just say that after I have my coffee, I am one of the nicest people in the world. <laughs> You're always one of the nicest people in the world, Jayhan. Come on. Because I'm always drinking coffee. So, you know, just 7 a.m. is not a good time. Just to just <laughs> tell you. Um, unless anyone else has any anything to add to that, I, I'm ready to move on to the next subject. Let me get... Uh, Jayhan, I, yeah. I did just have something I wanted to ask Sarah as an expert in the space. I thought it was interesting in the article that they said that there was a counseling component that came along with it, which I, I'm of two minds about. One is that makes a lot of sense. Excellent. But on the flip side, I wonder just with the counseling or just with the CBD, it seemed to be confounding to me. And it, Sarah, can you just speak to that just briefly to help me understand? I think that is so important to pay attention to. Uh, I mean, there's so much about this that I spend so much time thinking about and I'm fascinated about. And, you know, part of that is what people call the placebo effect, which it really just means different factors that we don't understand. And, you know, trying to be as controlled as we possibly can when we do those studies. You know, and I, I tell the people in my lab all the time, only change one thing at a time, only test one thing at a time. So what you really need is a group that gets counseling, a group that gets CBD, a group that gets both, you know, do they work synergistically together or, or is this a counseling effect? You know, it's so much can be attributed to a certain thing because it often comes with something else and we really can't tease apart um, you know, where is that benefit coming from? Is it just coming from talking to somebody? Oh, there's a lot of benefit that comes from yeah. that, for sure. A absolutely. You know, and I, I want to not stop the conversation about cut, about use disorder and CBD. I want to, let's add to it. Okay. So one of the things that I was always, the study that, that's stuck in my mind for, for, for over a decade was a study looking at people who are using cocaine in South America. And they started setting up chess clubs for them to come play with. And that social interaction was, was enough for them to exhibit significant decreases in using that drug. And they started looking at groups like this with CBD in South America. There's been some very interesting things. So anytime there's an intervention, I think it's, it's really important. One intervention could just simply be educating them about the product. Think about how much better a medical cannabis patient does just conceptually if they have proper education about the products they're using and how they're administered and what to expect than if they're just like give me one of everything and <laughs> to go you know um but there is another intervention that i've been interested in for a number of reasons one i like doing it two it seems to have a lot of health benefits and that that's fitness and exercise and you know we see there's no shortage of cbd health brands canna health brands um, and we can see a lot of pro athletes and, and MMA people are, are endorsing products. But what impact does cannabis have on, on fitness? And I imagine it might even have an impact on cannabis use disorder or other use disorders as well. But in a study, you know, involving 28 older cannabis users and, and, and over 130 non-users participating in an exercise intervention, similar to maybe a, a counseling intervention, um, they looked at a 16-week period and found that cannabis had no impact on fitness. So, um, you know, does that mean that Mike Tyson's cannabis use had no impact on his career at any point? I don't think I can make that jump to the study. Um, you know, uh, Nigam, you know, it, it's hard to talk about exercise during quarantine, but what was something that was surprising to you about the study? Did you expect everyone to just get super toned using cannabis and pumping iron? Or do you think they, you know, what's your reaction to the study? One here, this may not be what you want to hear, but when I read it, this was the thing at the top of my notes was the number of participants was kind of small. So, and, and that's something that I actually, I, I wrote big circle general comment that I'm noticing that across the board and 
um, not to, to bring everything back to Sarah, but her expertise are so valid that I, we see this often, right? In several of the studies we're talking about today, even, even the cannabis use disorder study, I think it was like 70 or 80 people, um, that the, the number is often small and then the, 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 to start with. So it just makes me wonder statistically how valid are these results? And then why aren't we getting more people if it's just CBD? Is it a funding issue? Is it an interest issue? Is it, um, anyway, so I don't know if that's what you wanted to hear, Jahan, but that was my immediate thought. David, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, Could I just add to that? Um, when I was looking this will be, I think a good primer for Sarah to ask, answer or address a couple more points in addition to what Nig, uh, just said there, you know, I looked at the demographics there as well and was like, all right, 75% of them have four year college degrees. Is that, super representative of you know folks uh, 60 or more um it was i think pretty biased to the male versus female ratio at least in the cannabis users and um oh, there was one other uh, you know is it predominantly white white folks as well not people of color okay. so uh, yeah well who's getting high and power walking around the mall uh only certain people can get away with that <laughs> <laughs> oh that's sad but probably true yeah and Sarah, your, your thoughts on the exercise study, um, you know, I, I was surprised to see, honestly, that it didn't make people less likely to exercise like, um, you know, ah, I'm good. Or, you know, I maybe I feel a little tired. I'm not going to go do it. I, I was surprised they didn't seem to see a significant effect there. But what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think, you know, one important thing to point out was, that's not the original point of this study, which in one way, I thought was awesome that here's this huge study going on, just focused on exercise, young people, older people, different types of exercise, huge data set. And someone said, hmm, I wonder if we can go into that data set and do a secondary analysis on cannabis use in older people, which is a hugely important issue. You know, I hear people debate all the time about the safety of using cannabis in the elderly, especially as it relates to motor performance. Are people gonna be tripping and falling and getting dizzy if they're elderly and they're using cannabis? So, you know, this is a cool thing about this study, but then it's also the flaw. The study recruited people to look at exercise. People who are going to enter this study, again, as sort of we're suggesting, are really a certain type of person. So you are getting perhaps the best cross-section of cannabis users uh, of, of any age. You know, my, my thought was if people signed up for this study, they were, you know, okay with the topic of exercise. Uh, you know, so you're already sort of self-selecting Perhaps, maybe not, but perhaps a subset of uh, cannabis users. Right, because where are you, where you going to recruit those people? Are you going to put an ad up at a, a senior mm -hmm. center where there's a gym and people right. who are walking around being active mm -hmm. are going to be like, oh, I want to do more things. And yeah. like, <laughs> so mm -hmm. you could have a natural bias there. That, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nigga, you had a, a point to raise? Yeah, just uh, one final thought. And Sarah, thanks for bringing up that that was uh, a subset of a larger study. I, I hadn't caught that in my in my review. Um, so, so that's helpful in my former comment. But something that I wanted to bring up, and I don't have the specific, you know, study to bring up. But Jahan, you had alluded to this thing that the results may be like surprising to some people to to essentially cannabis isn't making these people lazy, right? Am, am I misinterpreting? But uh, so, so what I wanted to say to that is I've actually, um, even now in 2020 with legalization spreading, we still combat stigma, right? Stigma surrounding cannabis. So, um, and, and maybe this is something we could bring up, uh, Jahan, I, I think you had mentioned even doing a whole podcast session on exercise, cannabis, athletes, uh, this kind of stuff. But, um, and we can bring more specific studies to light there. But I've seen some that essentially have data to combat the stigma that are showing that across age ranges, people who use cannabis tend to be more active, have less lower body mass index, which was reflected uh, in this study. So I just kind of wanted to toss that out there to continue to combat stigma 
as we kind of walk through this life. Yeah. And, um, and then there might be some other sort of secondary or tertiary effects, you know, there that, that we're not saying, you know, um, just to kind of give you a conceptual example, you know, there, there's a lot of cannabis jokes out there. And I think this is one of Joe Rogan's and he talks about like how, when he uses cannabis, it's not that he's like a, a very, you know, organized person. It's just, he keeps thinking he should be doing something. And he's like, ah, it's like paranoid. Like, Oh, I must, I, I can't, I don't have free time. There should be something I'm working on. So he's always like working on stuff and he gets a lot done through that way. But you know, other things like I would just assume if you're using cannabis and exercising, I mean, exercising gives me a humongous appetite. And then if I, you know, I can't imagine having an appetite stimulant on top of my body's natural, like, we want a cheesesteak message. It flashes in my brain after an hour. I would just think I would get so fat on an intervention like this. Uh, Sarah, you know, the results were really kind of interesting about the BMI, um, the body mass index. And, you know, is that a good, I guess, slice of, you know, the, the population? Is that representative? Um, you know, basically cannabis users have a lower BMI. Is the skinny hippie theory true? Can you, could you share your thoughts on BMI in this study? Yeah, so that is true. That's something that's been shown over and over again. That's always a conundrum um, that cannabis users, despite everybody's association with the munchies, do have statistically significantly lower BMIs, and it really speaks more to the metabolic effects of peripheral CB1 receptors. Um, and, and it's also, I think, something that's exciting news for the use of cannabis and diabetes. I've spoken to people in the diabetes field who think that there are, you know, aspects of cannabis that might be positive for diabetes patients, but they're always concerned about the appetite stimulant effects and potential effects on weight. And again, the good news there, and you know, this is probably a dose effect and a tolerance effect. It's probably likely that when you first start, you will start eating more, but I think it is more of a long-term effect and probably of, again, coming back to compensation, probably a down-regulation of the endocannabinoid system that is so important in regulating not only our hunger, but really the, the overall effect of cannabinoids is really one of effects on metabolism. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. Um, I really, I really like what you said about the adaptation and your brain adjusting to that. Um, because, you know, I guess if you're getting a, a false signal all the time, you might start to ignore that. Like, you know, sometimes I, I've, I've had roommates who like the, the batteries on their fire alarm are squeaking and they like let it go for like a month. And I'm like, hey, neuroadaptation. You're going to miss it when it's gone, buddy. Um, <laughs> Nigga, would you like to add uh, something to the BMI? Um, data no no i actually um i just wanted to to mention to you we've got our special guest on the line uh jayhan so shall we um shall we move on to our next segment soon all right all right yeah bring bring him on into the studio here we After, go of course you check his, his temperature and all that stuff and his um, and his id he's pretty young yeah all right uh, so we're going to take a break from talking about research to play one of our favorite games guess the psychedelic this is an open internet test, open Wikipedia, uh, to help you with the questions. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on the molecular pharmacology or, or the medicinal chemistry of psychedelics yet, but this is how I like to learn. So this is basically 20 questions. Remember, ask yes or no questions. And uh, Brett will also explain the rules if he has altered them in any way from our last discussion. <laughs> but basically, uh, it could be a plant. So it could be like San Pedro, or it could potentially be the active ingredient in San Pedro. It could be, you know, so it might be a plant uh, traditional product, or it could be a, an isolated compound. Uh, I've asked him on the scale of LSD to impossible to keep it near LSD. So uh, we're not going to go into like the two CBs and T-Call and Fecal by Sasha Shugan. That's next episode. So um, I've asked him to kind of uh, play to our strengths, as it were. Howdy, guys. Hey, there he is. How you doing, Brett? Good, good. Yeah. Especially now that I'm, I'm through the gauntlet of uh, digitally joining you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, how, how's Did you have North to get a retest of your temperature or something? Was it too high? <laughs> 
uh i've been on the treadmill all day so uh you know probably we were just talking about an exercise and cannabis study so that's perfect mm. um, literally the transition i was looking for um you're mm. on on the show with of course david valancourt nigamarora as well as dr professor sarah jane ward um, who i'm sure you are probably familiar with at this point hi everybody uh, all right, Brett, we know you're a very busy guy making discoveries and doing things like bringing S-ketamine to market and other breakthroughs and giving PhDs well, I, I, jobs. I didn't do that. My, my, partners, <laughs> my partners did that. But, uh, so you're, you're guilty by association. Enough. There yeah. we go. Um, so you're associated with a lot of interesting things happening in the psychedelic, in the cannabis space. So we'd love to get started with the, the game. Um, right, absolutely. I told people that we had a discussion about how difficult to make it on that sliding scale. And so, you know, we're not going to be on the impossible side of that spectrum yet. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a few ground rules, I guess. Um, Please. You know, we, we, we can be talking about, um, let's say, classic chemicals. So not the crazy Shogun 2CT7 uh, you know, 4M, 3MEO PCP, you know, random aracyclohexamine type compounds. Uh, we can I knew talk I about. <laughs> I shouldn't have stayed up all night studying that. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we can we can talk about mixtures, uh, which I'm sure everybody knows the most prominent mixture that people people enjoy in the in the uh, natural products category, and then of course we can talk about natural prod uh products brett are, are you are you ready for us to begin i am q a team are you ready are you ready and remember this is open wikipedia or whatever you want to use uh if you want to make it interesting choose one source you know uh pubmed versus like wikipedia or whatever um but brett you know I i'm gonna tee off here and just get the ball rolling and then we can go in alphabetical order by first name if people want <laughs> <laughs> or or uh, however we want to do this i just want to get everyone a chance to ask questions so brett um what psychedelic could it be um is it uh is this product um is it cultivated um on the north american continent like naturally occurring in terms of, of does it grow in north america that's my question oof uh Okay, yes, with a caveat. Uh, it would not be known for that. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, let's see. David, you, you look deep in thought. Do you have a... Uh, are you ready with your first question? We, have, we, got, we got 19 Re more to go. Ready so. as I'm going to be. Yeah, at least I won't be you know, guilty of throwing the linchpin in there of the worst question. If it's early on, you'll forget, hopefully. Um, <laughs> So, so let's see. Um, is it uh, does it come from the plant uh, kingdom? Yes. Okay. Good one. Good one. Uh, Nigam, do you have a question? I got to check Wikipedia right quick. <laughs> All right, Sarah, are you ready? I am ready. Um, so, my mother went to Woodstock. Does it, is it likely that she may have seen somebody using this compound? No, it's probably likelier that she would have seen somebody tripping on BZ brown acid. But no, not this <laughs> compound. Um, uh, great, great. Um, so, so far, it does grow in North America. It's not known for that. Um, you know, was it likely someone used it at Woodstock? Particularly Sarah's mom, probably not. <laughs> that was a great question. Um, and is it in the plant kingdom? Uh, yes. Okay, so we know it's a plant. Well, it, com it comes out of the plant kingdom. Right. That oh, was the question. Out. Oh, yeah, all right. It comes out of the plant kingdom. Yes. That's uh, actually to clarify there, let me toss in a question. Um, Brett, is the actual um, thing that someone would take a is it purified from a plant? Does it need to go through a purification process? No. 
Interesting. Curiouser and curiouser. Uh, is uh, is this product um, a controlled substance? Is it listed like in the controlled substance specifically as a controlled substance in the United States? Well, the, the interesting thing about that, I think, is that um, it's, it's very contextual. So I, I'm pretty sure if you're caught in possession of this and um, it looks like you are using it to get high, then yes, it's, it's illegal. I'll be real careful <laughs> with that. Um, but it, it, okay. it would be pretty, it would be, it's pretty hard to control mother nature, let's say. Okay. Um, okay. So is it, a, yeah, I should have worked better on that question. So that's kind of a gray, grayish area. Yes, but no seems to be the answer. Um, <laughs> all right. I see a lot of us thinking with our thinking faces on this. Good. Okay. So just to review, um, does it grow in North America? Yes, but it's not known for that. Um, does it come from the plant kingdom? Yes. Is it likely someone used it at Woodstock? No. Does it need to be purified? No. Um, it is a, something that is difficult to, I guess, regulate as a controlled substance. Um, so it's a bit of a gray area there, it sounds like. Um, let's see. Uh, anyone have a guess? We're only, we only oh, got five no, not questions. A guess. Or sorry, <laughs> not a guess, a question. Question. Sarah? Yeah, can I chew on it? And you chew on it. You can. It's um, not really known for that. Does it have, um, is there any known, uh, to your awareness, clinical trial work that has been conducted using this, uh, this substance? Uh, well, um, no. Using using the an active alkaloid in the substance, perhaps. Interesting. Hey. Would I might want to use this compound as a treatment for pain? Uh, you know the the, the data isn't there yet to substantiate it, but um, quite possibly. So not known for it. You, you would have to be pretty creative and forward thinking, but I'm not going to rule it out. Here's one. Brett, was it ever, has, has this ever been legal to sell in the United States, whether under a kind of false guise, for example, at a head shop or not? No. I mean, it, it depends how far back we want to go. I mean, you know, but back back uh, before you know in the 1800s, I'm I'm sure you could get it. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. I should have said I should have framed it better. Um, let's keep it. <laughs> I want to be very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Thank you. Thank you for the free clarification. You, so I don't have to you, burn you, a question. You could pick it up with your you know opium cough syrup and your cocaine syringe. <laughs> Can, can they form me? Eighteen ninety-two. Welcome to eighteen ninety-two in America. <laughs> I, I, I don't consume anything that isn't formulated in chloroform. So. Oh well, that's good. <laughs> um, so, uh, we, you know, we asked some questions about it, its growing. How likely were people to consume it? Maybe over the last couple decades, um, it's pretty hard to control as a substance. Can we chew on it? Yes, but not really. Um, it's not known for that. There's not clinical trial work known with this product, um, but maybe a derivative of it. Um, and there does seem to be good data about its pain. There hasn't been legal sales. No, no, no. There, there, there doesn't seem to be good data about this. It's the, the pain. I, okay. The pain, the pain, pain might be an interesting avenue of investigation, but um, you know, yeah, I'm, actually, I'm I'm, I'll take a look at that now. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. I'll put you as a co-investigator on the grant application. <laughs> and that's why we do this. I've got a guess. I'm just going to toss one out there. Is it Morning Glory? Yes. Bam. Wow. 
I'm glad I didn't say Salvia. Nice. Well, God that's why I, that's why I asked Jehan because I used to sell whatever you could. Um, there was like a gray area where they would sell Salvia as like incense, essentially. Yeah. Because it wasn't. It, it's it's like not for human consumption, but you could yeah, sell it. Yeah. You could sell I, it for yeah. not consumption. So I remember. So like- yeah. In, in, in the in the shops in San Francisco, they would like have like these pallets that look like incense, mm-hmm. you know, like, like like the incense cones and things. Mm-hmm. It was like, do not inhale, and it's like shows some goddess inhaling these vapors. On the <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so is this like the blue morning glories that we used to grow to grow up the side of our house, or is it a different morning glory? Uh, well, you know, there's a number of species I would have taken any of them. Um, there's Hawaiian baby woodrose. There's um, b- basically any North American uh, growing plant that, um, you know, contains seeds that had LSA would have would have done it. So, um, yeah, the blue morning glory uh, seeds have LSA. Uh, those are typically prepared by squashing them in either a water solution or an alcohol solution, Mm. letting them sit and then drinking it as a shot. Sarah, were those morning glory flowers growing at your mom's house in the 60s? Is that (laughs) that exactly what I'm saying? (laughs) Oh, I see. Yeah, well, you know, maybe she brought them towards (laughs) History has been rewritten. I mean, you know, you could buy LSD, uh, you know, at a, at a lemonade stand there. So, I, you know, I would have thought that uh, for a dollar. So I would have thought that LSA would have been kind of, you know, less exciting. Yeah. Uh, that is great. Wow, Brett. Thank you so much. Um, it was so much fun. That was really cool. I learned some some things a little bit different. I never thought about morning glories in this way. Like I did not. I thought you know, if you would have asked me before this, I would have thought, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're endemic to the like North America. They grow every, like, but that's not mm-hmm. really where they're from. Um, yep. I, it's so surprising to me how popular LSD has been at things like Woodstock, but yet this natural product that you could have had, you know, flowers in your hair dancing around or whatever, you know, like it, it just is so surprising to me that there, this natural product was there, but not integrated as much. Um, I think it was integrated, but, um, okay. you know, the, the, the thing is, it, that was at a time when you had um, the majority of, of people associating psychedelics with LSD, which wasn't criminalized until, what, 1962, 63, so- and psilocybin, of course, which the story for psilocybin broke in, in Life magazine when Gordon Wasson visited Maria Sabina and um you know oh. oaxaca and so wow. um, there was just i mean th- there were interest in other drugs but it depends on how small the uh let's say the subpopulation got you know the the beatniks were interested in all kinds of substances that were Very, that were yeah. pretty random yeah uh Nigam, you have a follow-up and i have a question for brett too totally uh, yeah no I, I have a question for brett so um brett earlier in the session we um in our first segment we reviewed some news stories and uh, Jayhan had brought up this company that's producing a, a sublingual strip that melts in your mouth to deliver um, psilocybin for, thera- for therapeutic purposes. Mm-hmm. And, I'm aware of the company. Yep. And uh, Jayhan had asked me this question um, about, you know, should people be getting into the space uh, for profit-driven purposes? And so I'm, I can't help but think as we're talking through these uh, different psychedelics as we play the game here and you being uh, an expert in the space. I'm, I'm curious, what do you think, Brett, about these, uh, about pursuit of some of these lesser known psychedelics for uh, medical or therapeutic purposes? And part of the reason I'm asking is, are, you know, is this emerging psychedelic industry, is it, is it about hype or are people really chasing the therapeutic benefit of the full range of these molecules that we know exist? Well, you know, we have a system in this country that um, uh, is relentless in terms of making sure that whatever a company is putting out for profit motive has safety and efficacy. So um, I believe in letting the FDA basically do their job. Um, Interestingly, other countries have 
uh, other bodies of regulatory bodies like NICE in the UK, which um, their mission is to make sure that there's an economic need uh, for the drug in question, because um, unlike here, where you have a lot of private insurers, as well as, mm -hmm. you know, Medicaid, Medicare, um, there, the government is picking up the check. So cost analysis becomes just as important a factor in terms of the regulatory burden that a, com a company has to undergo in order to put out the drug. Um, here, uh, there's a lot more attention to cost analysis as a major component to whether a company is pursuing a drug because uh, reimbursement is, is a big question now. It used to be you could just get a drug approved by the FDA and you could count on it being, you know, a blockbuster or at least, you know, making a bunch of money. But now um, that's not the case. Um, you know, you assume that you're going to get the drug reimbursed at your peril. You have to really do as much work on making sure that the reimbursement happens as you do on making sure that the drug is approved. So I think more and more um, you're seeing kind of the levers of, of free market capitalism to the extent that it is actually free market um, operating on the companies and uh, organizations that decide to put out a drug. So um, a lot of people are kind of concerned about, well, you know, did, does this company have the right motive or is it, you know, purely profit? I mean, I'm less concerned with that because in the end, um, I think that success is really going to follow what is demanded in the market, not only from a uh, safety and efficacy perspective, but from a patient need and value add perspective. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't totally get into the politics of, of all of that because ultimately I think that, um, you know, the drugs that respond to need in a, um, in a big way, not, not an incremental way, but a big way will, will prevail. And uh, really the, the politics around this, I, I think, and, and it's complicated, but I think a lot of the politics around these topics um, are, uh, uh, let's say, perpetuated by those who um, have a pretty rosy idea of, of these compounds and what they see as uh, inherent values in psychedelics, but which are, in, in, in point of fact, uh, they've never been inherently uh, moralistic. You know, these are these are compounds that the CIA were using to develop truth serums and using on unsuspecting <laughs> people. I mean, that, those were some of the initial uses for these things. Um, so the notion that they are, you know, quick pills to, you know, morality, I think, is, is, is pretty misguided. And, and the idea mm -hmm. that they should somehow be viewed in in capitalism from an exceptional lens, I, I find that kind of hard to swallow. Man, it's a good I, point. I love that. Uh, I don't want to volunteer to so take the take the thunder here to suggest a future episode, but I feel like we could fill up an hour to talk about that, especially with your, I guess, non-political perspective uh, adding to that, Brett, because there's, you know, there's components of marketing there and the direct-to-consumer marketing that's only allowed in the U.S. and New Zealand mm -hmm. for drugs, and there's just so many interesting factors that we could brainstorm that does tie back into this, you know, herbal product, you know, psychedelic movement, uh, and the benefits in, you know, for consumers, free market, therapeutic effects, et cetera. Mm, and, yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, and Brett, I'd say, you know, you got to be careful because as Sarah said, if, if you come on the show and keep educating us and our listeners about psychedelics, you might find yourself on yet another grant funding yet another <laughs> oh, project. God. Um, we are getting a little short on time. I think David's suggestion is fantastic. We love having you coming and playing this game with us, Brett. We learned so much. Um, but I just want to make sure, you know, before we run out of time, but Sarah, if you had any follow-ups for Brett, um, uh, you know, um, about the psychedelic stuff, um, you know, any last-minute questions or things? No, I'm just, I'm just so excited following the psilocybin research and um, you know I'm happy to hear you know that there are so many bright minds in investigating this and uh, LSA is a serotonergic and that may be involved in neuropathic pain so I might send you an email <laughs> yeah yeah you, you you should I mean I to, to be honest like I've 
And, and, <laughs> so, and Brett, you know, Brett where, yeah. where, speaking of sending you emails, how can people get in touch with you? I'm sure if this is the first time listeners are hearing you, they're probably like, I want to talk to that guy. I want to <laughs> learn more about what he does. He sounds like he's having fun. Um, so, so, you know, if people want to learn more about you and what you do and get in talk with, get in contact with you through appropriate channels, uh, what's the best way? Yeah. Um, you can contact me at Brett at Adelia TX.com. Adelia is, uh, my company and, um, happy to talk about pain and serotonin and, um, you know, any other interesting, uh, prospects there. We, we are looking at, um, uh, you know, pain at Adelia, um, to, to some extent, uh, pain is a tough market crack though, as you, as you know, Sarah. So, um, you know, you have a, a high bar, um, with, with the opioids. So, um, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there hasn't been a good pain drug to, you know, come out in, in quite a long, long time. And it's arguable that the, the ones that are effective are good <laughs> given the side effects. So. Excellent. Well, um, we got to wrap up this uh, episode. Otherwise, our editor and producer is not going to let us hear the end of it. Um, literally, because he won't edit it and we'll never hear how it ends. So, <laughs> uh, so Brad, if you have a minute, we're just going to close this out with, um, you know, something we're basically calling uh, some, some podcasts call it a finishing move. Uh, Jerry Springer calls it final thoughts. But um, you know, just give everyone who's participated in making this show possible, you know, a minute just to, you know, give a call to action, maybe draw attention to where you're speaking, a project, um, something like that. And so, um, David, I'd like to go to you first for, you know, your kind of final thoughts about the episode, you know, anything you want to share uh, as we close out the episode. Sure. I mean, it's it's just an honor to hang out with you, uh, PhDs and uh, Brett. Um, thanks for thanks for being a special guest with us, uh, with myself. Um, I just encourage everybody to you know read more, uh, continue to stay on the cutting edge of the research. There's lots of exciting things to happen, and you know, be in the habit of good documentation practices. Take notes and record what you're doing, so you can actually tell a story later and uh, use that to be statistically significant. All right. Perfect, David. Thank you. Um, Sarah, any, any final thoughts? I hope we don't get sued for that. Uh, any, <laughs> anything you'd like to share with the audience, uh, you know, maybe where you're speaking next or just your thoughts about some of the things we talked about today? Yeah, I'll just, um, well, if I can talk about where I'm speaking next, I'll, I'll give a plug to the uh, Jefferson Medical Cannabis Program that I'm uh, involved in. You know, I think something we would could also spend an episode on is talk about you know where we can get more medical cannabis education. So um, I'm one of the educators for the Jefferson Medical Cannabis Certificate Program, and they are currently transitioning into offering a master's degree from their program. And I'd also just you know emphasize what David said. You know keep reading and go to clinicaltrials.gov. You can't, I know, I can't check it enough times. It's, it's hard sometimes to wade through all of the information that we hear. Well, the, you know, this person found this in humans, this person found this in, in people. Um, and, you know, it should be on clinicaltrials.gov if, or, or that's at least a place to start to look for clinical studies. And then read the background because sometimes just a, you find a headline sounds really cool keep diving in until you find those primary sources to to really get a complete picture of what people are talking about in this space yeah i i love that sarah it is so important you know there there is no hack or trick to becoming knowledgeable at this space you just have to spend the time reading and and learning about the material and you know reading is important but i don't want everyone and i guess this is my final thought to spend so much time memorizing things, right? You should play with the information. I think that's, for me, is I don't try to memorize an article. It, it's easy to memorize it when you've talked about it a thousand times, but it's better that you play with information and analyze it and think about how does this apply? How could it apply? Because it's not important to like be late break, to just like break some news to people about a study that they don't understand. I think it's more important to take your time, analyze it and have a thought about it that, might be your own 
and, and help to help people understand what what they're reading. So um, I think it's so important. Even when I'm not feeling well, I'll still flip through a couple abstracts and read them just because it's so important. Yeah, you know, for folks like uh, Sarah and I, you know, clinicaltrials.gov is like our Instagram. We're always like scanning it, being like, what's new? What's new? Oh, I've read this post. Uh, do not like. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I'm moving on. Uh, uh, Brett, what would you like to leave? Uh, you know, any final thoughts for the panelists, attendees, listeners? Is there a book you'd recommend? Uh, a book that I would recommend. Where, where um, are you speaking next? Whatever you'd like to share. Yeah, well, uh, I, I don't know where I'm speaking next, uh, but it seems like I'm getting uh, calls for other podcasts and etc. I was just on um, a podcast called the Psychedelic Insiders podcast. And um, uh, there will be big news coming up about my company, Adelia, which is uh, in late stage uh, talks of getting acquired. We're actually sending back the uh, LOI today and uh, we'll be um, funded next week for the first year of our activities so wonderful uh, very yeah. exciting stuff and, um you know you, you'll uh you'll see that there will be some announcements uh, about adelia um that uh, this is probably in a couple months but uh you will think back on this episode and and see some irony uh given <laughs> given given the questions that were asked so uh <laughs> and, Excellent. and sarah I, I you know i'll i'll have to tell you that there's there's already some prior art on the LSA pain story. I, I just, I, I was sort of taken aback a little bit that you, you picked up on that. So um, I had to play dumb a little, but um, yeah, you know, we'll. <laughs> Excellent. You know, uh, it, you know, Marku and Aurora, uh, you know, Aurora, Nigam, uh, bring us home, close out the show for us with some of your final thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Jehan. Um, and, you, and you actually teed me up well. So I just want to encourage folks to check out the other episodes of our podcast, How to Launch an Industry, sponsored by Marco and Aurora. So check those out. Check out our site. Um, get in touch with us. And we, you know, look forward to bringing more, you know, cannabis, plant medicines, psychedelic news, events, research to the listeners. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, to... Our guests, I love you all. You did such a great job today. We are so grateful. And, and also to our listeners for you know, tapping or clicking on us. Whatever it is you do, we appreciate that as well. So stay tuned for our next episode. We're going to really pressure Brett to come back with some more information and some more games for us. It was really a fantastic time. Thank you, everyone.